Hi, Jeff. Hey, Alexi. Yeah, long time to see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we had an amazing webinar, thanks to you, a couple of weeks ago, which attracted quite a lot of attention. And we had a lot of questions that we didn't answer, 12 questions. And it, I thought it would be pity just to throw away these questions. And I thought we should do a follow-up uh, and record this, uh, all the answers. Um, yeah, so thanks for agreeing to that. And I also want to release this as a podcast episode without video, just audio only. And for those who didn't listen to your workshop, to your webinar about getting a data engineering job, maybe can you give like a short summary of what you talked about there? Yeah, so I mean, the main uh, point is that, you know, people really want to hire data engineers. You know, if you look at, you know, the statistics or even you know, Slack channels or LinkedIn, you'll see lots of opportunities for data engineering jobs. So then, you know, the reason why it's still challenging to get a data engineering job is you just, you need to really uh, convince employers that you'll have the skills that will enable you to uh, start contributing. Um, and, you know, if you think about what those skills are, it's essentially backend engineering, cloud computing, and data pipelines. Um, and so like with backend engineering, that means Python and SQL, uh, with cloud computing, that's Docker, a cloud service like AWS, uh, bash, um, and then, uh, data pipelines is like airflow, snowflake or redshift, uh, for our data warehouse and, uh, DBT. Um, and the main, you know, you'll see lots of people kind of build projects that check these things off, uh, post them on Reddit or something like that. But the main thing that I see when I look at these projects is that there's just not a lot of Python and SQL. And those are really the two main skill sets that you should be, that students should be focusing on. Um, and really that your, your project should display. Uh, so like lots of times I won't see like 50 lines of Python and SQL, let alone, there really should be, like I said, kind of like over a few hundred uh, of Python and a, and a few hundred of SQL. Um, and then you wanna, you know, write cleaner code. Uh, so that means, you know, small functions like five lines or fewer in Python, uh, use object-oriented programming, a hundred lines or fewer for each class, uh, have your names like be uh, well-named, you know, kind of descriptive naming and write some tests um, just to show that this is, you know, kind of a professional level project. And then uh, one idea I said for kind of really showcasing those skills in addition to your own project is work on open source projects uh, because this really enforces quality uh, of code, right? For people to accept your pull requests, uh, it means that your code needs to be readable. A lot of times it needs to be tested, right? And these are pretty close to professional level projects. Some of them really are professional level, meaning that they're built by and maintained by professional teams. Um, and also you'll be exposed to and will be forced to use like a full tech stack, like CICD, Docker, uh, you know, Python and SQL, how they integrate. Um, and a good, a good resource uh, for finding these is Code for America has a number of different chapters uh, and they are, you know, have like remote meetups that you can join and, and make uh, contributions. So that's really like, in terms of getting the skills. And that was essentially like the first half of the talk. Um, then the second half of the talk is the application process. And one thing I, you know, this is, I think the way to think about this is like a funnel, right? You have the bottom of the funnel, uh, which is essentially 
you know, sending in the application or getting uh, views on your LinkedIn. Um, you know, the middle of the funnel, which is kind of like the behavioral interview. And then you have the, uh, the top of the funnel, uh, maybe I have to put that in reverse, but you have the, the other, the last part of the funnel, uh, which is the technical interview and then the final round interviews. And, you know, the easiest thing I think for anyone to do, uh, the bottom of the funnel is just like improve their LinkedIn profile, um, have, you know, relevant skills listed, have as many of them as possible. Uh, meaning like you can have like 20, 30, 40 skills listed, definitely have a picture, have the about section relevant to data engineering. And from there, you know, when, when you apply on LinkedIn or other things, they'll look at your LinkedIn and I think you'll get a lot, uh, You'll, you'll, you'll get a lot more interviews that way. And then, um, you know, resume, just recraft it for a data engineering job. Make sure it's, it's relevant skills um, that even if you didn't have past engineering experiences, that you highlight skills that really translate into tech. You know, and you can show this maybe to somebody that works in a technical role, uh, like an engineering role to, uh, and talk to them about your past experiences that way that you're able to highlight them. And then, uh, you know, so that's the bottom of the funnel. And then the next step is the behavioral interview. And this too, I recommend, you know, speaking with a, a peer, someone that you trust, someone that you're close to and that you'll take real feedback from um, and kind of give them like this criteria. Uh, one is that, you know, you're a positive professional. And that means like the easiest thing is that you'll speak positively about all past experiences. And lots of times this is something that people, uh, fail on. Uh, people, even after you tell them, they still fail on this. And it can, in many jobs, just be an instant disqualifier. Uh, you know, people really want to make sure that you're easy to work with. Um, and so this is just something you have to do. And then the second thing is, you know, speaking clearly. Uh, by that, I mean, it should be, you should talk in a way that's kind of like an outline uh, when you're explaining things. Uh, so, you know, you can think of like a heading and then bullet points. Uh, so one, one kind of uh, classic book related again, it's like that heading and then different bullet points. It looks like a pyramid. Another way to think about this is problem solution. You know, in my last job, we had this issue uh, where, you know, we had a great product, but it wasn't marketed properly, or maybe we uh, really marketed well in one city, but we needed to expand. So my, my role was to figure out what we were doing here and then replicate it across 30 different cities, right? Uh, mention the problem, then go to the solution. And then finally, you know, answers first, right? If you think that someone has a question in mind, or they explicitly ask a question, give them the answer, right? As like, that should be your top line uh, reply is the answer. And then you can always go into um, more details about it. So this just ensures that you're an effective communicator, which is really essential uh, as an engineer. Um, so then the last thing in the behavioral interview, right? We did speak positive, speak clearly. The third thing is just show that you're interested in the position, uh, that you're really passionate and motivated to, to work in that role. Um, and then the key kind of story to tell uh, that you should feel and own uh, walking into the interview is, okay, given my past experiences and what I want to do in the future, this role is like the perfect next step uh, for me, right? So those are kind of three things to think through and, and do in the behavioral interview. And uh, like I said, I think it really benefits to uh, do a mock interview or two with somebody that you're you're close with, it could be really anyone, but ask them to evaluate this, them, uh, you on this criteria. And then finally, so you get through the behavioral interview, then is like the technical interview. 
Um, and then the easiest way to sum this up is generally it's uh, a leak code uh, SQL problem that's medium to hard, uh, a Python leak code problem that's beginner level. And then you can also see uh, a take home project sometimes, uh, I'd say in about a third of the uh, like interview rounds, uh, which is, you know, they'll give you some raw data, like a CSV file. They'll ask you to load into a database, uh, query the data, show some kind of findings from the data, and then present the findings either, you know, with uh, like matplotlib or data visualization library, uh, or just simply PowerPoint. And then, you know, from there, I say like the last step is kind of a, a crapshoot, like the final round interview. Uh, just Again, speak clearly, show that you're motivated. It, lots of times it is primarily behavioral and that uh, just they want to see an understanding of the tech stack. That's a good summary. But uh, of course, we missed a lot of uh, details. So check it out. I will include the link uh, to the actual video, to the actual webinar. It's quite long. It's packed with useful information. I think it's like the part where you present something is like 45 minutes or 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, quite extensive, mm -hmm. quite detailed. So check it out. And yeah, maybe I'll just do a quick summary of your summary. <laughs> so you said like uh, <laughs> sure. focus on four uh, areas. So uh, Python SQL, uh, Cloud, Docker, then Airflow and data warehouses like Snowflake, Redshift, then build a project that checks uh, all these things off. But don't just do that. Focus on Python and SQL, right? So you your project should have a lot of Python and SQL, not a lot of uh, other things, right? So you want to show people that you really know how to use these things. And then you need to write clean code, um, follow object-oriented uh, design and so on. Mm. Uh, and this is like, this is how you build a good portfolio. Then you can t take part in open source uh, project and so on to build this portfolio. And then you need to start applying, right? And the application process is you, uh, like you mentioned a few things, uh, you need to send out applications, you need to get a lot of use on your content on LinkedIn, and then in behavioral interview, you need to show that you're a positive professional, you speak positively about things, you speak clearly, show that you're interested in, and then for technical interviews, you get lead code SQL problems, you get lead code Python problems, and then uh, the last thing was you get a take-home assignment, which could be like building a small project, right? And then there are some stuff uh, in addition to that, right? Is it a good summary? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there could be, I mean, lots of times you'll get, you know, questions about, lots of times they're database related questions, you know, just like what's a view, what's a materialized view, or what's the difference between OLTP versus OLAP, things like that. And now that we gave all the context for those who haven't watched the webinar, please do watch if uh, if you haven't, but I think we provided enough context. And now I wanted to actually continue with the questions that uh, this is where we uh, stopped last time. Um, and yeah, we still have quite a lot of questions. And I wanted to start with the first one. So the first question that we didn't answer from the previous uh, session was, if you could go back in time, how would you learn about Python and SQL from scratch? Yeah, so I say, I mean, the hardest thing is getting started with a first programming language, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I started with with Ruby, but I found that very challenging to really understand those first few steps. I wrote uh, intro to Python curriculum uh, that I, I 
you know, I do really recommend. Uh, it's on jigsawlabs.io. Uh, so I, I battle tested this as kind of I mentioned in some earlier po uh, podcast by uh, by teaching my mom and giving the material to my mom. And I really, it, trust me, it was not uh, eligible for my mom to learn it. The first time I did that, she kind of gave me a lot, like lots of, okay, just get to the point uh, again and again. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think that it that it's it's really beginner friendly. Um, and there's no kind of installation or even sign in. You just click on it. Uh, but you know, I I, I recommend it. Um, I know I'm biased, obviously. I, for the SQL stuff, um, what are a first step? It, it takes you through the fundamentals, and then from there, what I recommend people do is two books. I really think are good. One is called Think Python uh, by Alan Downey. Uh, it's a short book. You can kind of like read it on the train or things like that. And then try to, I think he has some questions along with it. Um, and then of course, like automate the boring stuff with Python um, is also quite good. Uh, in both of them, I'd say like it's try course, to do the right? challenges. Or it's also a book. Because uh, I know that the, there is a both course. Both of them are books online. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. I know that there, I think there's like a Udemy course as well on the, yeah, yeah, on exactly. the boring stuff. Um, but yeah, both of them are good. And then... Uh, another resource I should mention for just backend engineering in general is like Miguel Grinberg, uh, like build a flask application, uh, something along those lines. Uh, that's that's a, a nice project if you want to get an overview of essentially backend engineering. And then for SQL, Khan Academy is excellent. Like they have, you know, both their interface is really good where you can start typing and it tells you when you're making a mistake and it shows you uh, really like in an interactive console, the results, and it, it's really a nice interface. Um, and, it, and it goes into pretty uh, strong uh, SQL concepts. So I would, I would start there. And then after that, um, I think Mode, uh, the dashboarding company, they have uh, some really nice lessons and tutorials on SQL as well. Okay. We will need all these links from you, and I will include okay. them in the description. Sure. Definitely, mm -hmm. that's I didn't know about a couple of things from here. So thanks a lot for the recommendations. So another question from Ilya is: If I already work in BI and mostly use uh, SQL and no-code tools, should I get the most from my current role to have higher start in data engineering, or change without waiting? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing to note is it's going to take time. You know, even if you land of the first uh, role, it's probably still going to take a month, six weeks uh, to actually transition into, a, you know, move through the interview process and, and switch the role. So I would say start like start uh, trying to make your job more technical uh, take on those projects. That's the easiest thing you can do uh, in that work. Then you'll still need to supplement with Python. The other alternative, if you want a data engineering role, um, the other alternative is maybe if you don't have a Python experience to look for analytics engineering roles, which generally don't require Python or at least too much Python. But uh, it can be both, right? So you can try to look for a job and try to make your work more technical. Yeah, exactly. The other. Although, yeah, it can be a bit tricky to, you know, find a job and then try to learn new things at work at the same time but that should be manageable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just want to be like, I think they'll they'll figure out what you know and what you don't know. So they'll have an idea as to how much they're willing to, you know, they they think they're comfortable ramping you up in new skills. 
Yeah, actually, like if you think about the job descriptions, uh, this is always worth keeping in mind that the job description describes the ideal candidate. This candidate usually does not exist. And mm -hmm, exactly. if you do not uh, tick off the boxes, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't apply. Like if it's 60% or 50%, you can apply. And then, yeah, uh, you shouldn't yeah. reject yourself before they reject you. So let exactly. them do this, right? So you just apply and then let them worry about you being a good fit or not. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it, just to reinforce that, like when I think back to hiring candidates, um, if everyone who applied to the job actually had all the skills we listed, right? Or we would have filled the job in an hour, uh, but instead it takes weeks and weeks because we, and we're, and we, when we ultimately make a hire, it's generally, uh, that, that hire rarely has all the skills and we're totally comfortable with that. Okay. Another question. I have almost 10 years of working experience, but non-coding related. Does that negatively impact the career path? And how do I decide between data analytics or engineering? I guess this is the second question. So let's start with the, with the first part. With the first one, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it just, you would just start as a, a junior engineer, essentially, right? Um, you know, as an associate or junior engineer, but otherwise it doesn't negatively impact the career path um, unless, uh, you know, as long as you adapt to kind of like the skills that, that are needed. So that's sometimes what we see is maybe people that come from uh, a corporate background, they're uh, a little bit concerned about asking questions or things like that. They just need to adapt to kind of more of a startup engineering culture. Uh, but as long as you do that, that's that's totally fine. I, I don't think it has a negative impact. And, and a lot of the students that I've taught have had 10, 20 years experience in something else. Mm -hmm. And on the contrary, it can have positive impact, right? If you uh, if you're, let's say, you're a lawyer or, I don't know, like in your case, you were a lawyer, right? But you can be, uh, I don't know, bookkeeper or whatever. And uh, if you, let's say, apply to a company where your domain expertise will be very valuable, then all of a sudden you're ahead of other candidates just because of this domain expertise. So maybe for your first jump, it would be, uh, if it's possible, of course, yeah, you should try to find for areas where your domain expertise, your previous experience will put you ahead of other people. Right. And then just to reinforce that, um, I mean, really, you know, also skill set, like one thing that people don't expect, uh, but it's kind of true is lots of times musicians make very good engineers uh, because they're very detail oriented. They get into uh, the work. They focus on, you know, little steps to make it better. Um, and it's a real craft, right? Which uh, so is engineering. And so I, like, a lot of former students that I taught were musicians and are exceptional engineers and uh, a lot of hiring managers uh, know, have had that experience as well. Was it something you said uh, in the webinar that if you're good at one thing, it's likely that you're good in, you could be good in other things. So mm -hmm. you mentioned this in the series, right? Yeah, exactly. This was something uh, the CEO of my old company uh, told me because one of one of our students, he was like an NCAA basketball player. I think he was on like the championship team uh, and he was getting tons of interviews. Uh, and the CEO was like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Like he's he just said he's like winners are winners. You know, in and out, you know, we always want to hire winners. Uh, so that's that's the way he, he put it. So if you're if you're really strong in something, uh, 
yeah, we have we have a good amount of those students as well. Um, I mean, it's, it just shows like dedication, passion, detail oriented, uh, self learning, like all those skills translate. And uh, coming back to the second part of the question, how do you decide how to decide between data analyst or engineering? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd say there's a couple ways to think through it. Data analyst, can, depending on the role, can be uh, a little bit more entry level, right? Because like, it doesn't always require technical skills. Um, it's also a little bit more in the vein of you know, actually doing analytics, meaning using data to make decisions or inform decisions, right? And then data engineering is uh, oftentimes more the, it will, it is the engineering skill set, meaning SQL, Python. The reason why I kind of hesitate is also because data analysts is, is a pretty fluid definition. You'll see, you know, some descriptions that really require zero coding, and some descriptions that essentially look like a data engineering role, and then some descriptions that essentially look like a data science role. Um, so it, it really depends on, okay, what that term means. But in general, uh, like in terms of subject matter wise, data anal analysts is more extracting insights from data. Uh, and the engineering is right, the Python and SQL and cloud computing to collect and organize that data. And perhaps the data analytics role is where your previous 10 years of experience can be uh, a bigger advantage where mm -hmm. while in data engineering maybe, yeah, because data engineers, they don't tend to work closely with domain experts with uh, and all this, uh, uh, to say like uh, they're maybe data analysts they're a lot closer to product to the end users right so we're having the domain expertise all this experience is more important right okay another question i am just in first year uh, of it job in data integration monitoring pipelines and solving data quality issues issues um, I have Python 3 certificate, IBM data engineering certificate. Am I eligible to switch to data engineering role as a junior or senior? Oh, and this is this part is confusing. Uh, switch to data engineer role as junior, or should I opt for postgrad in big data data engineering? So basically, I guess the, the question asks, uh, am I ready to work or I need to keep uh, learning? I mean, it's really like, do you have the skills kind of mentioned, right? Like, do you have Python and SQL skills? Uh, that's the main thing. Like, can you, could you contribute to an open source project? If you kind of, if you saw kind of like an ETL project, uh, you know, online, right? Uh, that that looks like a, a code base. Can can you actually make contributions to that? So do you know Git and GitHub? So really it's, it's all about the skill sets. Um, and, and that's it. It's it goes back to that question. Okay, we want data engineers. Well, like we want. So if we hired you, could you start contributing uh, and helping us organize and clean our data? And uh, again, it doesn't mean that if you go for a post postgraduate degree in big data or data engineering, you will automatically learn the skills. Maybe I would you will totally spend agree with that. Two years learning interesting stuff, but yes. then after these two years, now with advanced degree like with a master's degree, you could be back to square one 
without mm-hmm. uh, and you still might not have the experience you actually need for the job and in right. some cases yeah you just need to to do it to learn how to do this yeah one thing one thing to kind of highlight about that is i mean when evaluating these programs uh one thing to ask is okay what percentage of the students graduate from the program and then of those graduates what percentage get jobs Right. And then you multiply those two numbers together to see, you know, your probability of getting a job after the program. So if 60 percent of the students graduate and then 60 percent of the students of those get jobs. Right. That's really a low percentage. It's around it's a little it's 36 percent. Right. Of students that enroll in the course ultimately get hired. And you want to see like where are the what are those jobs in? How long does it take to get those jobs? Right, that will kind of uh, show you the success rate um, uh, of enrolling in the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, also maybe like it shouldn't completely discourage you. It's just, you know, this is statistics, but if you're motivated. But then again, like, do you really want to spend, uh, I don't know, two years getting a master's degree? Uh, because like master's, they, it's more, in my experience, they usually focus more on research rather than applied stuff. Like if you want to learn applied stuff, I'm not sure master's degree uh, is the, this is, is what you need. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I see is sometimes the courses don't, aren't really integrated, meaning that sometimes they'll teach the same topic again and again. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, sometimes they'll, like if you do data science, sometimes they'll teach regression so many different times uh, through the course, but, when they could be, you know, just enforce, you know, ensuring that students learn it and then move on to other topics. Uh, and then sometimes uh, the courses don't always like line up. For instance, some courses may teach Python and then some te- courses might, okay, then go into like Weka or, or R or something like that, which doesn't really reinforce the first skill. So th- that's what I see sometimes with uh, master's courses is they have individual co- uh, teachers uh, developing each course and they, they don't really mesh too well. It might sound like we're trying to convince you not to do masters while it's partially true. <laughs> I think I was trying in, to some extent, but on the other hand, it also depends on what you want. Because for example, the masters I took, uh, people who I studied with, they were the people behind Apache Flink. So they actually learned like all these fundamentals, like uh, a lot of hardcore stuff to be able to work on Apache Flink, right? So this is not something you can, uh, you can of course learn this at work, but yeah, some areas they are quite researchy, like if you want to find, to come up with a new way of doing uh, stream processing, right? So then you probably need to have this research foundation. But if all you want is just, you know, work as a usual data engineer at a internet company, or maybe not necessarily internet company, Mm, yeah, maybe you can take a shortcut. Yeah, one, one thing I should mention too that I saw as a career path is that some students will first land the job, uh, you know, as an engineer. And then after a year or two, they'll take a master's degree course, uh, like online or something like that. Uh, I guess because they think, you know, and I think it can be really useful to their skills if they feel like, okay, I want to at this point go deeper into like algorithms or, uh, or maybe it's just something I feel like I need on my resume in order to progress. And, you know, there may, depending, or, or maybe the company will pay for it, right? So 
Um, I think it could be useful, like after you're kind of more informed and you're around people that are really informed uh, to, to then get a master's degree. Exactly. Okay, moving on to the next one. So what do you think about fully remote, i.e. work from anywhere, data engineering job opportunities? I found many remote, but all of them are based in the same country. Mm -hmm. I also saw them remote and then in parentheses US only, for example, or right. EU only. So what, what do you think about this? Like, have you come across uh, such positions? Yeah, I, I tend to see the same thing, you know, say like US, Canada, or it'll be kind of time zone, say willing to work in this time zone. Um, yeah, that's, so I, I guess the question is, how do you get jobs from a different country? And I do think that's challenging. Um, one thing may be at that point, it feels like the bar would be even higher for like, you'd have to be, you know, just, it might be even hard, harder for you to get the position, meaning, okay, just be a standout candidate would be like my recommendation and a way, I think like the theme of kind of, uh, of what I keep saying is just like, okay, to get the job, just do the job, like do the job before you get the job. Right. So that, so, and show, show that. So that could be, again, like, that's why I keep saying like open source, but it could be any kind of real project to show, okay, I'm already doing this. Like I'll be able to contribute. There's really no risk with me, you know? Um, and that's great. If you can eliminate the company's risk, then I think they'll, you know, they'd love to hire you. And I did come across some companies who work fully, uh, like who, who hire fully remotely. There are fewer, fewer of them compared to uh, to those who hire in specific ge geographic locations. Um, but I think there is a reason, like, for example, if a company has a legal entity in the US, maybe they don't want to deal with all the paperwork that come with hiring right. people from, let's say, from Europe and the vice versa. Uh, but some people, some companies, they're willing to, to invest, so they believe in fully remote uh, work from anywhere. And these are the companies you need to try to look for. Uh, they are harder to find, but they do exist. And I guess uh, to find them, you need to do Jeff. Said. Okay, um, moving on. Should teaching or coaching on data science related classes uh, be included in your CV in the related uh, in the past experience section? Yeah, of course. I mean, like that's definitely relevant. Like it involves, you know, coding skills, involves analytical thinking, uh, it involves communication. So all, all those things are great to highlight and it involves kind of ownership of a project. So yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, to me, teaching is, uh, it shows me that the person can, well, as you said, it's communication, right? So a person can not just uh, learn something, but also pass on this knowledge. And in teamwork, this is a very important skill, especially if you talk about like uh, senior roles, where it's expected from senior people to coach and teach uh, more junior uh, more junior team members. Right? So this is very helpful. And uh, it also, like to me, if you can teach something, it means that you also learn quite well. Because in order to teach, you need to know the thing quite well, right? So, it, like, there are only pluses. I cannot think of negative uh, uh, yeah. sides here. I agree. And I'm, I'm just thinking of all the kind of teachers 
that I've worked with in the past, and a lot of them have moved on to from teaching, and they immediately got hired in like amazing engineering roles, you know, like Netflix or Facebook, Microsoft, like basically name your company. Um, but uh, like another another reason why they're so successful is it it's mastery of the fundamentals, uh, right? That's what you're teaching lots of times, and that's uh, like essential in interviews and on the job. Yeah, and if you taught a course uh, about some basics of I don't know Python then probably answering the question uh, on the interview that asks about some stuff you, you were teaching shouldn't be too difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, if they go outside of what you are teaching, that might be trickier, but at least if like you were doing a course, you were teaching a course about something, then uh, it also like gives you an advantage. Anyways, moving on, is object-oriented programming a must for data engineering roles, or uh, what do you think? I think that you should know it. Is it a, can you find data engineering roles that maybe don't require it? Probably, uh, but in I think of like data engineering as basically being a software engineer that that also knows cloud computing and data pipelines, and just a lot of the tools like Airflow, right, is in an object-oriented way. Like it's it's using objects to create the DAGs and what workflows, whatever, things like that. So um, so yeah, like I think that you should know object-oriented programming. And then um, as for Java, Scala, right, Java, so I've actually, I've had some students that, you know, we've never taught Java, but I've had some students that because they know object-oriented programming that have been hired in Java roles. Scala is, uh, so I think that you can, you can learn Java, uh, but I would focus on, most of the roles I see are still Python. So that's what I recommend. Um, and then Scala, you'll see that as well. Like that does come up and that's more different, right? Than Python It's more functional. Um, and I think more of a challenge probably to learn for beginners. So yeah, it would probably disqualify you from some jobs that are a bit more senior level. But if you're starting to learn, to code, uh, if you're starting to get, trying to get that first role, that's why I would focus on Python and ignore the jobs that are saying, all right, we want Java, we want Scala. Or maybe not ignore, apply anyways, and let them yeah. reject you, don't reject yourself. But sure. this is, I, I guess it also comes back to the discussion we had previously about Spark, like how important is it to know Spark? And uh, the point you had was that uh, you see Spark more often on uh, uh, job positions, on job descriptions for more senior people. And I think this is the same jobs where you see Java and Scala, right? Because mm -hmm. like Spark is written in Java Scala, right? And it's uh, natural that uh, at some point uh, you might also need to maybe write some of your Spark jobs or maybe at that company they write everything in Scala that also happen. Um, yeah, so I guess like uh, when you're there and if you already have some experience, maybe used PySpark, then they can just hire you without Java uh, just because you already have the, all the foundation. And then Scala, Java, they're different, but not so different that you cannot learn this on the job. A question from Christian. 
So was it mentioned how many technical questions you are given in the interview, SQL Python? I guess this is a question about the technical interviews where we were talking about all the SQL, um, sorry, lead code, SQL, lead code, Python uh, kind of questions. Yeah, I think you generally get like five to eight, maybe. Uh, like in a, you know, they're kind of, kind of like different style of questions, but um, yeah, that's generally what I see is maybe it could be either like a take home, in which case maybe they'll list, you know, five to eight questions that are Python SQL related, or it could be one of these, you know, either in person or live coding, uh, and it's the same type of thing. Um, or of course, it could also just be a timed. But it, but again, it's I, I normally say like around five to eight. Mm -hmm. But I guess you mean like they're relatively small, right? Because I cannot imagine uh, if somebody asks you to solve uh, eight lead code medium algorithmic challenges. That's true. That's that would be a lot. Although, um, you know, though. So then, it, but I think yeah, I guess it would be more like five. Oh yeah, or 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 some relatively small, a longer, more challenging thing would be eight, and maybe that's around a couple of different mm -hmm. rounds. I mean, you do get these marathon interviews that are you know four mm -hmm. hours long or something like that. I think the kind of questions I saw uh, are you're given a database, and then the first question is I don't know to group by. The second question mm -hmm. is to group by, but having the uh, with having the, the having close right, and then I don't know. Uh, another one is you still use the same database, right? You still write the same kind of queries, so you don't need to get into context every time. You 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 go you get the next question. You you kind of know the data already, and then it's just about uh, maybe tweaking a bit the previous answer, adding the having clause or adding the order by clause or I don't know, God forbid, uh, these window functions that I have to Google every time I need right. to use them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Those are. The, I'd say those are. I definitely would prefer uh, those interviews. Sometimes I, you will see kind of essentially one of these uh, like hacker ranked style quizzes. You know, where you finish one problem and then you click, and that gives you a different prompt. I find them pretty challenging uh, because sometimes they're timed as well, uh, and you have to just get used to the interface. But it's you know that's what they're. Some companies are asking. So I think we already talked a bit about the topic of certificates. So the question is, is a GCP data engineer certification valuable for getting your first data engineering job? So what do you think about this? Yeah, I think that we're kind of, we're in agreement. It's essentially, it's a skill set, not the certificate. Um, maybe there will be some uh, like recruiters that will be looking for that. And then, you know, you'll get into that first round. But again, ultimately they're going to be you know, you're going to be talking to a hiring manager who wants to know, okay, do you know these topics and uh, can you can you code? Um, and the in my experience, candidates haven't had too too much difficulty getting to the interview, right? Like getting interviews for data engineering positions. So because of that, I would just focus on the skill sets. So preparing for the certificate is useful if you prepare, like if you study the fundamentals, if you don't grind for the format of the certificate right because you also like when you take a quiz like you if you do these exams you also mm -hmm. need to prepare for the format which maybe is not super useful for the job you're doing but the fundamental knowledge that you need to pick up when you prepare for these certificates that might be useful
Right. One thing also to that say might be what will be. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, and I've used some of those certificate books, uh, like to ramp up on different features of AWS and some of them are really well written. Okay. Yeah. Also like this thing in AWS, these roles, I am roles. This is something that was blowing my mind all the time until I took a course, a part of the course that was also focusing on AWS certification. And I just, just took the part about the roles. And then right. finally, I cannot say I got this completely, but then at least uh, like now I have some order in my head. So it, it's not just uh, a chaotic mess. So yeah, they can be helpful. Um, another question or moral statement like I find that open source contribution projects uh, still fall short fall short as they ask for commercial experience they here I think uh, refer to companies so you have open source contributions but companies still want to have commercial experience from you um, so how do you compensate for that how do you apply for a job that requires commercial commercial experience when all you have is open source contributions yeah I mean I would still apply obviously and like i said i i haven't found people having that much difficulty getting to the interview round so i wonder if it is the way that it's um spoken about so that's kind of one thing it's just okay are you choosing i mean some of these open source contributions like if you're making contributions to prefect or something like that it's hard for me to think that people like kind of poo poo that and same thing if you're if you're making contributions to uh you know real like almost like some of the like nonprofits that have really a team of engineers. Um, those you're essentially doing free work for the company at that point. So that so one thing maybe is if you're working, if you're doing that for some nonprofits, you can potentially, you know, parlay that into like almost a little bit of an internship uh, experience, right? Or say you you ask to meet with the company uh, or with an engineer once every couple of weeks. I think there are some companies that will do that, that will kind of mentor you uh, at a certain point, um, which is pretty good. And then the other thing is, you know, maybe there are some small roles or gigs, like kind of contractor type roles that at that point you can take on, do, and then add that to your resume. Um, but I would be, I think that you should think through and one thing I see a lot is people misdiagnosing where they're getting stuck. I think you should think through which part of the funnel you're you're getting stuck in. So if you're if you're getting interviews, uh, then you're probably then you're probably hitting uh, your resume is probably good enough. And meaning you're you know that's kind of the purpose of the resume is to get you to the interview. In my experience, um, so then you want to think through okay. Am I communicating my skills well in the behavioral interview? If they're just having like a, a quick conversation, or you want to think, okay, is there something else I'm not doing in that behavioral interview? Maybe maybe you're not being as positive as you could be, or showing that this is really the job for you. But you're they want to hire people that have the skills, right? Um, so it, as long as you are able to demonstrate that, uh, you should there should be enough roles out there uh, out there for you. There are going to be certainly some companies that say no, we only want people you know with two to three years experience. I get that that happens every day that I reach out to companies. But also what happens is I I reach out and don't claim my students have any experience, uh, and people are happy to talk and interview them. And also here the question is what actually qualifies as commercial experience? Is it when you get paid for what you do? Or is it when you work in a team, uh, I don't know, with uh, 
senior engineers and stakeholders and whatnot. And uh, like probably you can have this uh, the second one still doing like this uh, data for social good kind of projects uh, and uh, for getting paid. Uh, I don't know. I don't think companies really care if you were paid or not. Like all they care is if you can solve the problems. So I guess you need to demonstrate that that in the behavioral interviews, right? Okay, I'm currently 40 and work in sales. How can I convince recruiters to give me a chance to pursue a career change? I'm currently pursuing a computer science degree. Yeah, I think that, you know, like I, I would just say the same thing. Like I've had a lot of students that are 40 plus um, and then move in. Like I have a, a student currently who's 40 plus and he gets you know plenty of interviews. The one, so I'm trying to think of more when it would be an issue because, because uh, uh, which I can think of some scenarios uh, because in general, I, I don't find that to be a barrier. Um, especially if you have, you know, a good amount of, you know, people would see that as an asset, right? Like they, lots of times people want to hire adults. Uh, it's, it's great to have uh, someone who will show up for work, do their job, right? And, and be, be a, a great professional on their team. Uh, when it can be an issue is just more, you know, if, if a startup is looking to hire like a, a 20, you know, three 28 year old who's going to be working like 70 hours a week, something like that. And that's just simply not a, a good fit for you at this point in your life. Um, and you know it and they know it. And so, you know, that's, you know, that happens too. But uh, like I said, there's, there's generally enough roles. I think that you should probably, you know, talk uh, and see, uh, you know, where it, where, where you are kind of getting stuck in the interview process, if that's happening. Uh, but it's, but in my experience, it, it won't, really won't be an issue. It is something I'm asked a lot about when students enroll, you know, in a course or something like that, but when they actually go on interviews and start the application process, uh, last times they're some of the first people to get hired, at least my last couple of students that fit that uh, demographic. And also, uh, thinking about sales, I know what sales people need to do, and they're very good communicators, right? And uh, you should use these skills because many of the tech people do not have them. So engineers are usually pretty bad at convincing people, persuasion, like all these things that sales people know how to do really well. Because as a salesperson, you need to know how to sell. Right. And here you need to sell yourself, right? And then you've been doing this for, I guess, quite some time, right? So you need to know how to package your skills uh, to sell yourself. And I think you're qu quite in a good position uh, for doing this. So I think this, uh, this area, maybe it's not super technical, but uh, you can use the skills to, for your advantage. And yeah, one other thing is, you know, it's like finding solutions for problems, all right? It, you're you're finding solutions for the customer given given a problem. So we have students that were, you know, solutions engineers, and a lot of that involves sales, and that's that's a good background because it's you know understanding the client needs, uh, see seeing and understanding the issue, uh, and then recommending or seeing how the product can fit into that. And I mean, that's a big part of engineering as well as choosing the right product, understanding the issue uh, and taking the right steps forward. Yeah, I think I saw this uh, solution engineer or solution architect, right? This kind of roles. Mm -hmm. So exactly. oh, it's like pre-sales or post-sales could be both, 
right? Yeah, exactly. It's it, it's exactly that. It's you know they they sometimes they know a lot about the product and they're able to understand uh, the client needs and then work with them to get onboarded and provide ongoing support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe you're not working on the core part of the tool, but you know how to use the tool very well to sell it to the client. Yeah, that's actually a good thing to to try. Okay, I think that is the last question. Amazing. So we covered all of these questions. It took a bit longer than I anticipated. But yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for being available, for taking some time to finish this. It took, I don't know, like that, like we had quite a few questions because it had it took like, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes to, to finish all of them. So yeah, thanks again. And please send me the links. We will include all of them in the description. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Sounds great. Anytime. Yeah, thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks, Alexi. Bye.